Some time ago, my friend Mike called me and said, Steve, I have a message for you. You have to make a podcast. It's very important. Do it now. And I said, okay, I will. Can you provide me with extra time to do that during my busy schedule? He said he couldn't do that. But then I managed to free up some time. So here's my podcast, Audio Chimera. This is episode number 19, Wipe Your Feet, All Ye Who Enter Here, or Memorable Moments in Theater. December 2017 marked my 40th year doing theater. Who knew that messing about in a small campus production of Woody Allen's Death Knocks would jumpstart a long artistic and theatrical career? And, as the Grateful Dead would say, what a long, strange trip it's been. The many bizarre experiences, great and small over the years, have frustrated me, entertained me, enlightened me, and for the most part, kept me out of trouble. At times, in frustration, I have thrown water bottles and clipboards. In others, I have been reduced to such hysterical laughter that I couldn't control myself. (laughs) And of course, there's been everything in between. So here are some items from the list of A Life in the Theater. Auditions are always a time for potential strangeness. Some auditionees don't know the director, and vice versa. Everyone is trying to be on their best behavior. And then there's that person who overthinks the moment. I was auditioning actors for Moliere's Misanthrope at Penn State Hazleton. It was my first production there, and I wanted the aspiring actors to know that I welcomed their creative input. One student looked over the script pages that I had given him for the cold reading, and when I called on him, he walked forward and said, Can I kneel? I took a second to reply, not sure why he would, but he'd stand out while kneeling. Sure, do whatever you want, I said. So he knelt down, and the person reading the role of Fallant read, What is the matter? What ails you? My kneeler, barely glancing at him, says, Leave me. I pray. Now, the punctuation is a comma, implying, leave me, I pray, which would mean, I urge or ask you. But here, he was interrupted at prayer and demonstrated to me he didn't quite get the period language. Several years later, I was presiding over the first script read-through of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Scene one with Orsino et al. had gone fine, and now we were proceeding nicely through scene two with Viola and the captain. Viola had just explained that she was going to seek employment at the court of Count Orsino. The captain replied with, Be you his unch, and your mute I'll be. I stopped him in mid-couplet and said, Unch? It was eunuch. Of course, some actors are fascinating. Working in my senior show as an undergrad, I walked up to one of my actors before rehearsal. He was standing stock still, just staring ahead. I asked if he was okay. He looked up into my eyes, and tears started rolling down his cheeks. I said, oh man, what's wrong? He then laughed and said, I'm teaching myself how to cry on cue. 
I think I treat actors pretty well overall, and lately in the last few years they have often complimented me on how I let them have a great deal of input into the creation of their characters. And this notion of collaboration is likely the one aspect of theater that has kept me going as long as I have. I like working with other people and seeing what they bring to the discussion. And part of this treatment comes from less than stellar experiences I have had personally. At Ohio State, I was in a production of Aristophanes' The Birds, and I spent one morning, from 9 a.m. till about noon, in a rehearsal room, waiting to rehearse my scene as the real estate man. Finally, it was my turn. I did my entrance. We went through the dialogue. The director said, That was good. Thanks. And the stage manager dismissed me. In that translation, I had about eight lines. Not only did I wait for three hours to deliver those eight lines, but I was given no direction for improvement. Note to self, don't waste other people's time. And so I left, and as I walked back to my apartment, in trying to avoid the crowds of people on campus who had come for a football game, I stepped into an open space to move faster and almost got trampled by the OSU marching band. Also in the category of what not to do as a director, don't scream at an actor during intermission for something you think he or she did. Again, at OSU, I was in an Irish play, Edna O'Brien's A Pagan Place, as one of the men in the town. I was mostly an extra, helping to move set pieces during scene changes, but also had lines as Mr. Holland, the tavern barman. Unfortunately, I was not allowed to wear my glasses and wouldn't be getting contact lenses until the following summer, so I was basically blind. During one scene, I had to tap the keg of porter, and it never worked right. Some technical issues combined with the fact that I couldn't see what I was doing. So I would tap it, and it would leak, and then drain noisily onto the floor. One night, as I exited the stage after trying to wipe up the dripping liquid from the floor with my barman's apron, the director accosted me in the hallway and began yelling at me about how that was a mess and how I ruined the scene, and whatever else she said. I just shut down and was silent, not replying. I don't advocate not listening to a director, but that was just wrong. So, if you believe in karma, the director did get her due. She came to my directing class to talk about this production, as the various MFA and PhD directors would. Our professor was Byron Ringland, who had been, and I believe would be again after that, a professional New York director. He would always cut through the BS and say exactly what he was thinking. After he pressed the director for the third time on her concept, which she seemed unable to articulate beyond, the men of the village are there for support and to create scene changes. Byron took a huge inhalation of breath. The director probably became lightheaded for a moment as he may have sucked all the oxygen away from that side of the circle desks. And he said, But you are not telling us what your concept is. Martin Glynn and Stephen Shrum moving furniture is not a concept. Martin was a grad student in the English department who happened to enjoy, well, mostly enjoy, acting in university productions. Fortunately, I got to use his sarcasm in a production of Shaw's Dark Lady of the Sonnets as a beefeater. Look for Martin in a film called Bonnie and Clyde vs. Dracula. Of course, sometimes the craziness of the theater emanates from the director, and I must say I have created my share of bizarre ideas over the years. 
As my farewell to Penn State Hazleton, I staged Iphigenia, an adaptation of Euripides' Iphigenia in Aulis and Iphigenia in Taurus, with music by Jeremy DePrisco. Jeremy would later serve as composer on productions of my adaptation of Ibsen's Pier Gint and my original musical, Dog Assassin. The two acts of Iphigenia were to bookend my adaptation of Aeschylus's Oresteia, for which I have the adapted script, but alas, no composed music. Yet. I entitled the entirety The Iphigenia Cycle, with Iphigenia and Aulis set in 1957 as the Greeks go off to war. Agamemnon, set in 1967, would feature the return of the glorious war hero who is then killed by his wife. The Libation Bearers, set in 1968, shows the young people, dressed in hate Ashbury summer of love fashions and splitting off from their elders. The play would ask, is Orestes' vision of the Furies really a drug-induced hallucination? The Eumenides, set in 1969, all easy rider in Woodstock, shows Orestes, with the help of a god and a court of law, brought back to safety, and how the Furies, a dark force unleashed by murder, are turned into benevolent gods. Finally, Iphigenia and Taurus, set in 1970, features Thoas as a cult figure, a Jim Jones Guiana kind of guy. Orestes finds Iphigenia alive and rescues her, and order is finally restored to the house of Atreus. Think of all that as my elevator pitch. And if all that wasn't crazy enough, my request for the set was to have a huge cloth hanging above the actors. On the bottom, it was camouflaged to reflect a military look for Thoas's compound. At the end, when all of Thoas's followers drank the poison Kool-Aid, the cloth dropped down and showed purple material, like the shrouds used by the Heaven's Gate cult in their mass suicide in 1997. That was not the craziest request I ever made. One time my wife, who's also my costume designer, asked if I needed anything special for that semester's evening of one acts. I asked for a camel, a nun, and an alien. No, they did not walk into a bar. One last theater story from grad school at Berkeley. The goal of the Department of Dramatic Art was to create scholar directors, and so we had directing classes and academic history classes. But then someone decided we should probably know a little about design. And so to our curriculum, they added a course in design for the director, which we called Tea with Henry. The professor was Henry May, the departmental scenic designer. He had worked in early television, notably on the CBS series Omnibus, and designed nearly every set for Berkeley's main stage productions. While he may have been more exacting with his designs, the seminars had much less structure, and we grad students began to call the sessions Tea with Henry. He would muse about the various aspects of design, inspiring a simile I would later apply to many conference panels and faculty development sessions. It was like panning for gold. Most notable, however, was one day when Henry decided to tell us about the usefulness of using shafts of amber light but he used the term golden showers, apparently unaware that it might mean something different outside the theater. If you are unaware of alternative meanings, please check out urbandictionary.com. He urged us to imagine a huge doorway opening up stage at the rear of a set, and then suddenly you would see golden showers. All of us in the room realized that there was no way we should make eye contact with one another. If that happened, it would all be over. In the meantime, Henry continued to talk about the quality of light and said golden showers several more times. And then, 
I caught the eye of another student. And we started laughing. And then the rest started laughing. And we grew nearly hysterical. And Henry didn't know why we were laughing, but decided it was a good point to take a break. I always tell my directing students, if something bothers you, follow your instincts. In this case, if you think, don't make eye contact, don't do it. Anything you want to hear more about from this podcast? I can elaborate. Just send your request to stephenschramm at musifier.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-C-H-R-U-M at musifier, M-U-S-O-F-Y-R.com. Or leave a message at 724-835-4074, and I'll see what I can do. I receive no cash for products I mentioned, but please feel free to throw money at me to advertise here. For more information on my works, check out my website, musifier.com. For written works, search for me on Smashwords as Stephen Schramm or Musifier, or find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. This is Stephen Schramm. Thanks for listening to Audio Chimera. <laughs>